so you, you know you're wandering around this sort of place where you know maybe no you know white feral fella has ever ever trod and suddenly you wander into this little shelter it might only you might just have a hand stencil or a few scribbles or it might be something better and it's uh, it's very special my name's andrew lee and welcome to the good life a politics free podcast about living a happy healthy and ethical life in this podcast we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Annie McQueen, OAM, is a quiet activist for the Australian bush. He has worked on bush preservation programs, scouted new routes through the wilderness, and led hikes. Active in the sport of rogaining, Andy's love of the bush comes through in his five books about hiking the Blue Mountains, the most recent of which is Wayfaring in Wallamai. Andy, thank you for joining the Good Life podcast today. Pleasure, Andrew. So, what are your earliest memories of the bush? Well, I think my earliest memory is uh, walking a, a, a track at Wentworth Falls, not all that far from where I now live, as a matter of fact, but it was a family outing, and I think I must have been six or seven, and we were up there for a few days, uh, staying with relatives at a guest house there, and I, I just have this memory of an early morning walk with, with family, and it was a cold morning because I distinctly remember there were icicles hanging off the cliff beside the track. And at the same time, this aunt of mine had this beautiful singing voice and she was, she was singing as we went along. And I, I just, I can still, I can still hear that singing, that beautiful singing of, of my aunt. And, and the icicles, and I might add that I've walked that track many times in recent years and I've never seen icicles these days. <laughs> it sounds positively a sort of sound of music kind of experience. Well, <laughs> I guess it was. Um, and it was, uh, we, I lived in Sydney at the time, but we, uh, we found ourselves in the mountains at least once a year and we'd walk the, the popular tracks, the tracks that are still very popular. Um, and yeah, that was my... Uh, that was my introduction to the Blue Mountains, but also around about that time, or in the years that followed, I spent a lot of time just knocking about Karingai Chase, mm. um, or um, as it was then called, um, and exploring more for myself uh, with the scouts and, and so on. Um, yeah, I just be, became comfortable in the bush. Yeah. What was it about the scouts that, uh, that expanded your confidence? Oh, well, I mean, I, I was actually a fairly sickly child for the first few years. I used to get a lot of bad asthma. and uh, um, Which is surprising. I mean, you you strike, strike me as uh, strong and fit, as I see yeah, you sitting well, in Yeah, well, I sort of overcame that, I guess, by the time I got to sort of high school age and got in, active in scouts. And whereas in those earlier years, I never got involved in sport because I couldn't run or do anything like that. And uh, yeah, I found that by the time I was sort of growing stronger, I could, you know... Um, I could actually get out there and you know do some decent walks. Even today, I mean, I uh, I um, uh, you know manage my asthma extremely well, but um, you know I can't run very far. I can walk up a big mountain, but I can't run very far. Mm, mm. So, like, I think I was very fortunate. The the scout group I was involved in, especially by the time I got to 
senior scouts, as it was called then, now uh, more or less the venture age. Mm. Um, I uh, was with a group of other lads who uh, were extremely enthusiastic and we all had um, the potential to sort of organise things for ourselves. Our leader was an interesting guy at that stage. Um, he was um, not a particularly competent person in, in the bush himself, but he was a great mentor and he encouraged us. And uh, so, you know, we just organised our own quite adventurous walks in ways that you wouldn't often see now due to the red tape and so on. Mm. It covers a lot of outdoor activities. Um, and, uh, yeah, I you know, used to write you know, notes and journals of all those walks and... Um, I just got thoroughly into it. Um, was getting lost in the bush an important important part of that uh, that upbringing? Being uh, comfortable with yeah. momentarily not knowing where you are. Yeah, 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 yeah. I look. I I was I've I've never in my life been properly lost. But yeah, there's there's always those moments. Even today, I mean, I pride myself on my navigation. Every now and then, you think, oh, I've I've made a minor mistake there and mm. need a bit of correction. Um, but that's okay, you know. That's it's all. I, I always think. People have always got to get a bit lost to, you know, to actually get that, that to know that they can recover from a yes. situation. Uh, unfortunately, now I guess with so many people carrying devices around the bush, that's it's everything's done for them, maybe, and uh, um, or, or maybe it's not because I think it, it, people get a full sense of confidence sometimes, and uh, and just because the device says uh, you've got to go in that direction doesn't mean to say it's feasible to go in that direction. Mm, so, mm. Uh, mm. So your uh, your great love is is of the Blue Mountains. Uh, re remind me again, why are they called the Blue Mountains? Uh, well, or why uh, are they blue? They were named very early in colonial times because of the you know the, the blue haze that uh, ostensibly is related to the the, uh, the the eucalypt particles in the air. Although that's you know I, there's a lot of other mountains around the world that look uh, look blue in different circumstances. Yeah, but there's some blue mountains in Jamaica. Ah. And although it's never been, um, the link has never been proven, so a lot of the early officers in the early colonial times had experience of Jamaica and the name might have okay. might have actually just supplanted itself from there. Yeah. Uh, and what's special about them for you? Uh, what's special about them for me? I... Uh, I think a long association with them, perhaps going back to my childhood days. Uh, I hasten to add that I, you know, I've enjoyed walking in many other places as well. But um, one thing that made well the Northern Blue Mountains or the Wallamai uh, very special for me was my discovery that I was descended directly from uh, one of Major Mitchell's surveyors, uh, by the name of uh, Frederick Darcy, who in the early 1830s. Um, uh, surveyed all the Colo country, which is about as rugged as it gets on the mainland. And he had all sorts of trials and tribulations. He was a bit of a larrikin, um, and uh, his whole his whole his whole life stories are quite interesting. But but anyway, he, we uh, should he, say you, uh, you you wrote the seminal bio biography of your uh, yeah, great, yeah. great 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 grandfather. I did indeed. Yes, and, and yes, he, he made a name for himself in a number of places, including one of the first surveyors in, uh, in, in down at Port Phillip laying out the streets mm. of Melbourne but uh, and earned himself a bad reputation there actually but anyway another story but look you know he uh, it's quite incredible this this well he was a lad you know very early 20s leading a bunch of convict assistants in very rugged country and uh, 
but with a very um, very difficult taskmaster, Major Mitchell, Mitchell, but he still managed to um, pull off surveys that, uh, well, for for a century or so, that his his maps of the cola were were it basically, and partly because of his artistic genius too. Uh, well, uh, he I don't know whether he was an artistic genius, but he he did a number of skill. Uh, yeah, yeah, he did a lot of uh, drawings and sketches in his life, most of which haven't survived. I hasten to add, but um, yeah, his maps all still survive mm. in mm. the state archives. Yeah. And so uh, you have, have explored in particular the Wollomai uh, wilderness. Um, what is it that's special about that area? Special for me, I think, is, is the fact that it's such a large, largely untracked place where you can still uh, follow the footsteps of all sorts of interesting people who've wandered around there. So. So I yes, the book that you mentioned earlier on on the Wallamai, I, it contains stories of a whole host of people, but not just bushwalking bushwalks and explorers, but uh, you know cattlemen. Uh, the army spent some time in there, so there's an army officer, um, uh, you know, other surveyors, um, and uh, yeah, uh, bushwalkers, male and female, uh, all sorts of interesting characters who've wandered around there and told their stories in different ways. And uh, it's, I just find it fascinating to, to bushwalk. Well, I like bushwalking with a purpose. And one, one good purpose is to just go and relive the sorts of experiences other people have had and try and see it through their eyes. So, you know, people have had a different worldview to me or, you know, they're just from a different time or whatever. Um, uh, but just trying, trying to you know, get inside their heads a bit and see what it's all about. It just, it just brings more meaning to that to that landscape. Mm. I, I, I kind of regard and wilderness as a as a time machine. You know, if you're out there, uh, you know, it, in many ways it doesn't. Uh, it's a lands landscape that hasn't particularly changed. I mean, obviously it changes with you know climate conditions and so on, but basically it's a place that hasn't altered drastically over millions of years even. And uh, uh, and here we are in our society, everything changes well from, from week to week, so to speak. Cities get torn down and rebuilt in, within a lifetime. And uh, But out there, you know, it, life goes on, nature carries on, and there's all these stories from the past and that you can sort of, it's almost like a time machine you can go and revisit. And part of my endeavour out there in the Wollamai is that I, uh, I'm very interested in Aboriginal history. I don't, I'm, don't profess to be an expert on it or cast judgment on it in any way, but I'm, I'm, I have an interest in it and I've been involved on a number of occasions in surveys for very remote rock art sites um, and there's some quite remarkable many remarkable sites scattered all through very rugged country so you know I can't help wonder when I'm out there what was what was it all about what were those people doing and uh, it's a source of fascination for me and, and connection uh, for me to just ponder on all, all that. What's it like when you feel like you're the, the first European in a long time to stumble upon a, a rock art site? Quite extraordinary, yeah. <laughs> it's it's actually an amazing experience. Um, yeah, uh, it's it's those uh, those surveys are referred to. We often 
you know, when I say we, I'd be I was, it, it all those surveys started off as a as a, uh, um, a, a project sponsored by the Australian Museum. So under the guidance of uh, uh, skilled uh, and qualified anthropologists, uh, especially Professor, or well, he's now Professor Paul Tayson, we'd we'd be out there. But we'd operate in small teams. Um, we're all you know, experienced bush people. But, but each day, if we were looking for sites, you know, we'd tend to sort of just break up and, and quite often you'd, you'd just go off on your own, you know. Yes. And, uh, so just wandering around on your own in a place that you wouldn't normally be, um, because, because normally on a bushwalk you're sort of headed, headed from A to B and you take, you know, the most logical route. But if you're actually looking for some something in the bush, whether it's uh, an Aboriginal site or indeed, you know, some particular type of, you know, flora or fauna, you, you might wander off the obvious route down some obscure gully and, and you know, looking for, mm. looking for you mm. know, a little cliff line or something. And uh, so, you, you know, you're wandering around this sort of place where, you know, maybe no, you know, white feral fella has ever, ever trod and suddenly you wander into this little shelter. It might only, you might just have a hand stencil or a few scribbles or it might be something better. And it's, uh, it's very special. Yeah. Thinking about uh, stepping back in history too, there's of course the Wollamai Pine, and we're now mm. 25 years on from its uh, its its uh, first re rediscovery. Uh, these these are amazing trees. I mean, trees that were hundreds of years old when Shakespeare began writing. Uh, what's it like to to be there? Next to a Wallamai pine. Well, I haven't been to the site, <laughs> so uh, yeah. Is this I, by choice? Yes, it is. And well, because you it, presumably it, know where it is, having written. I, look, I have a rough idea, but uh, the uh, national parks and uh, the botanic gardens people that, are, uh, that have the interest in it are um, have always been at pains to keep the location secret. Look. I, it's at times it's been a badly kept secret, and you know people do seek them out. But there's issues with transmission. It became obvious quite early on that it wasn't a good idea to be visiting the mm. site because of transmission of Phytophthora and what have you. So I, you know, on principle, I've yes, yeah, yes. I've not sought them out. This is very and much like not climbing a Larue. It's not it that, is it's it's not that you can't do it. It's that it's, you choose it, choose it, not to do it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, is it what's it what's it like to be in the area of uh, of, of the Wollamai? Are you, are you aware aware of these these ancient trees when you're in that in that part of the world? I, well, I th to me, I th I th yeah, the whole landscape seems ancient to me. So yes. yeah, and that's just one facet of it that's, yeah. you know, that's yeah. hidden away in some gorge. There. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. You've also talked about uh, the uh, past explorers. Um, what was it for them to be exploring with convicts? Um, that's, it seems that must have been sort of a strange way of, uh, of, of exploring the wilderness, these early Europeans. Oh, yes. Well, uh, and the early surveyors who were essentially explorers sent out there into previously uh, unsurveyed country and country that in many cases hadn't been properly explored by uh, uh, by white people, and certainly that was the case in the Wollamai. They most of them disliked it intensely, and and they had very bad experiences with their convicts in some cases. Um, one of the surveyors I wrote about in the book, uh, Peter Ogilvy. I mean, he ultimately suicided, and that was some time after his 
the long, you know, the many months he spent in the Wollamai, but he spent similar periods of time in other areas. You know, I, I, it's just inconceivable the sort of conditions they worked under because they would they'd be out there uh, as a, you know, as I say, with these convicts, and the convicts the convicts were the chosen for the survey parties were probably the on the whole the better class of convicts, but. Uh, nevertheless, there were often problems, and they'd be out there that you know, their shoes would fall apart, and the they had poor rations, and uh, you know to get a message back to you know, back to Sydney was would take weeks and was unreliable anyway. Mm. And and then you know if if there was any sort of relief involved, then that they had to that you know the party had to be relocated, or you know the, the messenger would have to find the party way out in the sticks somewhere. It was, it's it's quite incomprehensible by yes, today's yes. communication standards. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, in some cases, uh, I my ancestor Darcy seemed to get on with his convicts remarkably well. I think he must have. I think that was probably because he was just a bit of a alarican and he got on with them. For t right. <laughs> but uh, but others, it was quite the opposite. Yes, I mean there wasn't a huge class difference either between the uh, the, the convicts and the free settlers. Uh, I know there's an old economic study which uh, points out that both groups were drawn from fairly similar strata of British society. Oh so. my word! Yes, and uh, and of course many of the early free settlers were emancipated convicts too. Mm. So, mm. Um, in the case of surveyors and explorers, though, uh, a lot of those people were you know. Former military, or or from you know the the gentleman class, mm. shall we say, uh, which meant that those people were often just not well equipped for dealing with people of you know, the working class, so to speak. Yeah. You tell the story in your Wallamai book about Benjamin Singleton uh, coming upon a an indigenous ceremony. Mm. Uh, what uh, what characterised the relationships between these uh, these early explorers and traditional uh, owners? Well, that was quite an extraordinary encounter at a place called Mount Monondilla. So after exploring up, you know. People, many people would know of the of the, of the Putty Road. So they're eventually going up the Putty Road, but then turning west into the into the northern Wollamai. And after many days of uh, of this, uh, yeah, they camped at the base of this mountain and had a scary experience in the night. And and uh, uh, the next morning, well, they felt under threat from rocks being rolled down the hill at them and so on. But the next morning, they encountered what what he described as. Uh, uh, over a hundred Aboriginal people on the mountain, and uh, things were a little bit tense. Um, the uh, ostensibly uh, the Aboriginal people sort of told him where he needed to head if he wanted to go further on his expedition to the. He wanted to go to the Hunter Valley, basically, but um, he wasn't. I don't think he altogether trusted them, and he decided to head home. But but the he had an Aboriginal uh, chap with him who feared for his life. Mm. Because mm. these Aboriginal guys, uh, uh, I think uh, only one of them spoke any English, and they were essentially they were living in their traditional way, which is actually quite surprising. Um, we're looking at uh, eighteen seventeen, and um, it's um, you know quite a time after the, the settlement at Sydney, and uh, for people to be living in. Uh, what appears to have been a traditional manner, so uh, 1818 it was, um, so so long after 1788, 
mm. so close to Sydney is quite a surprise, actually. Yeah. But but the extraordinary thing is also that there was such a large gathering of people out in what we regard now as as uh, wilderness, with, which would probably had low potential for them instead of in terms of food gathering and so yes. on. My, my belief is that uh, they were there, there was probably a meeting of different peoples and it was uh, there was some business going on. Mm. So this was a sacred space rather yes. than a, 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 yeah. a productive space. Yes. Yep. Uh, you've also uh, d done exploration in the middle of Australia, including uh, scouting for uh, for groundwater near yes. Wynn Jones uh, Creek. Yes. Um, <laughs> what is it to uh, to explore in, uh, in in desert country? Oh, well, it's very different, but also also very enjoyable. It's a totally different feeling of space. Uh, I uh, only a couple of years ago, I was up with a with a friend uh, doing a doing a walk up in, up in central, central Australia for a few days, off, off the beaten track. Um, uh, yeah, I, it, I, I don't really know how to describe it. I can, you know, I can probably write about it more than I can just say talk about it. But it, yeah, it's just, just that sense of space and silence. Mm. Um, uh, and I, for me, uh, yes, so back in the 70s, I, I was working uh, based in Alice Springs on on, uh, on water resources projects. So that, that took me out into, out into the country quite a bit. So I, yes, so I'm, I'm interested in the, in the geology of the area. So that's part of it too. Yes. Um, um, yeah. Uh, I, uh, the, uh, the now famous Lara Pinta track, you know, west of Alice Springs, before long before that was even thought of, we used to go wandering around there with a geologist from work on weekends. Um, very different experience now, I think, with so many people walking along a beaten track. But you know, to, to get off the beaten track and uh, just go exploring for yourself, whether it's in those uh, rocky ranges or, or indeed out in the desert. Mm. Um, yeah, I, uh, uh, you know, the experience of being out in the in the desert just camped under a, uh, a desert oak. It's uh, quite special, yeah. And you write in, uh, in, in uh, one of your books about uh, being watched by a dingo and what it's like just to have the, uh, the, the eye of a wild dog on you. Yeah, oh, well, that was, that, that's right. So that was back in the, back in the 70s and um, at the time we were exploring for groundwater for uh, the proposed resort that became Yulara and... Uh, so I was way down at this place called Britton Jones Creek, which is not well, wasn't a creek at all, really. It was a, it, extreme rainfall. It might have been a watercourse of some sort, but it mm. was just uh, just out in the in the sand dunes, really. And so I went down there and by Land Rover, quite some distance, uh, just on my own, uh, pegging sites for some later work. And uh, yeah, so I just camped out there. And yeah, this dingo came round and just sat at. Uh, um, some distance from me, just curious. I've had a few experiences with dingoes like that since. Um, this was before the uh, the Chamberlain business at uh, Uluru. Um, but you know, having seen the way dingoes behave, I I, I know that uh, you know, once once they once they become really familiar with people, it doesn't surprise me at all that they can be uh, you know, to a threat to young children and what have you. But but if you're right out in the in the sticks where they're not accustomed to people, they'll still just hover around uh, out of curiosity sometimes uh, and maybe follow you or, yeah. Yeah. 
They're an extraordinary animal to, to look at. I mean, they do remind, remind me of, uh, of, of uh, uh, mar marathon runners, their kind of uh, lean and hungry look about them. Oh, yes. Uh, not, yeah. a, uh, not, not an ounce of fat, not a, not a bit of the, of the body that is wasted for achieving the purpose of a dingo. Yes. Uh. Yeah. And, and this place is where I had this encounter. I mean, there's no surface water that I know of for a huge distance. It's extraordinary how animals have adapted Yes. Well, obviously the dingo's been in this country for a long, long time, but also out in that same country were rabbits. Yeah. And yeah, no water to drink. They must have just been surviving on dew from, you know, such as it was, yes. on, on spinifex grass. And, you know, no idea where they got their moisture. So, Andy, you've done a lot to, uh, to guide people through walks and, uh, in, in the wilderness and to, uh, to educate people about the wilderness. Uh, for... A listener who's thinking about uh, doing more walking, um, what are some favourite spots you enjoy to walk and what are some tips that uh, non-walkers mightn't think about and, uh, as, they, as they set out? Hmm. Well, I, yeah, I, I always have great difficulty recommending a place <laughs> where to start. But, uh, I mean... If, if people aren't familiar with walking, obviously, then you start with just some easy, you know, day walks around, around tracks, in, whether it be, uh, you know, close to Sydney or further afield in the mountains or Tasmania or, or whatever. Uh, there's hosts of possibilities and no end to little guidebooks that'll show you on the way. Um, I, I, I always think for people to really enjoy and be and get a comfort with the bush, then at some point, you know, it's nice to get a little bit more adventurous and maybe mm. go, on a, go on an overnight walk somewhere or or uh, on a lesser-known track. Now, I've, I've had quite a bit to do with the bushwalking movement over the years and uh, the, the bushwalking club movement, I should say. And uh, um, I, uh, I think many people have got into walking just by, you know, joining clubs. Now, that's a bit problematic these days because the Bushwing Club movement is probably uh, full of people of uh, advancing years and uh, and not many clubs are attracting younger people because younger people these days sort of just uh, um, are more likely to sort of grab something off the internet and say, well, let's, let's do that and, uh, you know, um, do what somebody else has done and, uh, and head off. Well, they may or may not be well equipped for it in terms of the ideal um, yeah, equipment and skills, uh, so that can lead to problems. But I mean, good luck to them. Yeah, I mean, I've got no, mm. no, um, I've got nothing against people having an adventure. And as I said, you know, alluded to before, you know, it, uh, if people get a little bit lost or make a mistake, well, then yeah, I think that's 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 a learning exercise, and you move on from there. Um, my kids love geocaching as a, oh, uh, yes. as, as a way of getting them to explore yes. different, different bits of the bush. Yeah, you know? and I have uh, quite a number of friends who've, who do that, yeah, yeah. Who travel extensively doing geocaching. Yeah, you've, for those listening, you've, uh, you've got an iPhone app that directs you to a, uh, to a site and in that site you find a little box with some odd plastic toys in there. You take out some of theirs, you put in some of your own mm. and you uh, tag it as found and move on to the next yeah. one. Look, you know, it's... it's uh, there's all sorts of ways of, of being uh, becoming into contact with nature, and I don't. I've come to the conclusion it doesn't really matter. It's not all that important how. Yeah. It's just important for people to get out from behind their screens in their house and just 
get out there. Yes. You know? And it is a real concern to me that you know, so many kids just have little or no, you know, uh, contact with uh, with nature at all, let alone any sort of really thoughtful contact mm. with nature. Mm. Um, but getting back to your question, I mean, there's another way of, um, of people becoming engaged is uh, people, uh, a lot of people these days are involved in uh, 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 bush care type activities, uh, maybe just in their local environment, um, you know, in their local suburb, you know, patch of bush where something's going on, you know, weeding activities essentially. Um, some people, you know, are much more involved. I'm, you know, one of uh, a huge preoccupation of mine is I do remote area uh, bush care we, in the on the Colo Gorges and also in Tasmania, um, and but you know, that's different into the spectrum. But just by going out there and uh, and poking about, um, looking after a piece of bush is a way of connecting with it and feeling a sense of ownership. Mm, mm. Um, you know, it always used to trouble me uh, when, I, uh, when I first became involved in the Bushwing Club movement that, uh, of 30-odd years ago. Uh, I was in, uh, became involved with uh, what's now called Bushwalking New South Wales and became aware that uh, um, a high proportion of bushwalkers, you know, it's your right to go bushwalking everywhere and, you know, it was all about the enjoyment of the bushwalk, which it, which it is, obviously, but but it was sort of, um, well, you know, we're the bushwalkers and you, being national parks or whoever is responsible for this country, you know, you should be looking after it better sort of thing. And I, I think basically we're all responsible for looking after, looking after the country and uh, especially these days where... Uh, most agencies are supposed to be responsible for national environments that are a bit strapped for cash. Mm. Um, you know, I think it's important for all of us to to uh, do what we can. Yeah. Yeah, and you don't necessarily see the same with other bushwalking cultures. So I think about the British uh, 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 approach of uh, of, of uh, tramping through common areas and the the walking groups in Britain that see it as crucial to continue to walk the common paths mm. lest farmers uh, try to try to fence them off and close close them down they see themselves as responsible for keeping those those common pathways uh, open and uh, as public thoroughfares yes and I've, I've had a bit of that experience in England for, from my you know, mm. wife's family uh, yeah um, it's it's fascinating the way all these all these as you say all these you know, historic traditional pathways through through private lands. And, of course, we have very little of that mm. in Australia. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, people, some people complain about being locked out of national parks, which is a bit of a myth, but, you know, where you're really locked out of is, is private lands on the whole. Mm. You know, if you, it can be a lot of hard work to get permission sometimes and it's not always forthcoming to if you need to cross a patch of land to, to get into, you know, some, uh, some public land, for instance. It's... Uh, it can be quite an issue, and um, yeah, I'm I, I'm struggling to think of more than a handful of places where uh, yeah you can there is an agreement to uh, walk over private lands. The closest analogy I can think of is there's a group who insists on walking walking the foreshore around Sydney Harbour, yes. uh, where private landholders have attempted to put down jetties in in violation of the basic yes. Australian principle that the uh, the coast is is public property. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. yeah. 
so uh, what do you what do you pack when you uh, when you hike? Oh, as little little, <laughs> little as possible. Are you a minimalist? Yeah, uh, reasonably minimal. Yes, it's it's interesting. I um, fifty years ago, a bit over fifty years ago, I did a, a three week major adventure in southwest Tasmania with some other young lads, <laughs> and um, and I kept a fairly comprehensive journal of that and uh, about that and. 50 years on, last December, we, uh, most of us, uh, five of the original six, did a section of that same trip in the Western Arthurs Range, mm. uh, which is quite challenging for people or people of you know, around about 70. But anyway, we, we pulled it off. But the really interesting thing is to look back at the journal and compare how we went about it and what different, what gear differences. Yes. So now, whereas I've got a you know, very lightweight uh, sleeping mattress, don't any way. I don't know what it weighs through, 400, 400 grams or something. You know, 50 years ago we didn't have any form of mattress. It was before even closed cell mats were were invented. So we basically just slept on the ground sheet on the ground. And uh, I suppose perhaps partly because we were young, that's just what you did. But uh, I can't actually um, imagine myself doing that now. So yeah, so yeah, lightweight mattress, lightweight sleeping bag, uh, yeah, a quality, reasonably lightweight tent. I'm not. I'm not into some of the really ultra lightweight stuff that some people are, but yeah, pretty lightweight. Uh, lightweight foods, you know, it's all basically on de dehydrated mm. foods, supplies, um, carefully selected clothing. Um, yeah. Um, these days, of course, you know, emergency beacon. <laughs> it's all part of the normal kit these days. Um, uh, and uh, what else? Yeah. Uh, I, sometimes when you go, you get all this lightweight gear, there's a temptation to sort of say, well, I've saved that weight. Well, it takes a few extra luxuries. Like I, yes. try, I try not to get into that trap because I think, um, you know, at, at my age, the longer I can keep uh, going, the better. And, um, you know, the, the best way to do that is uh, to keep your weight pretty minimal. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and if you're going for a, a day hike, I take it it's uh, it's just uh, water and a, sna uh, yeah, and a snack. Yeah, yeah, lightweight rain jacket um, and uh, a few snacks and yep, yep, nothing special. Yes, yep. light pack. Yeah, I, I have to say that when I I mean I frequently walk tracks not far from home these days. Just you know, on a, just during the week, whenever, just to, as part of keeping fit. And uh, it's really interesting to see the sort of people who are getting out there and. Uh, uh, and their uh, and their apparent ethnic origins and so on. It's a real mix. Uh, it's quite yeah. pleasing to see, actually. Um, and um, yeah, just just to see people people getting out. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, the Blue Mountains have a special place in the heart of uh, my wife Gwyneth and I. It was uh, uh, where I took her to propose. Uh, she's American and uh, uh, a lover of the bush, and so I figured that there was no better spot in Australia to uh, to, to propose than the Blue Mountains. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, well, we didn't actually. My wife Liz and I, we, we, I didn't propose in the Blue Mountains, but I guess I think I proposed down the Snowy Mountains. But uh, mm. <laughs> but we had our uh, very brief honeymoon at the Hydro Majestic at Medlow. <laughs> ah, fantastic! <laughs> we're uh, we're Edmund Button met his end. That's indeed. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you're also you've you've also uh, competed in the sport of uh, row gaining, mm. uh, having uh, taken bronze in the uh, the world championships oh. over 65s a, a, couple, a couple of years back. Tell us about row gaining. Uh, right. Well, 
Um, so most people have heard of orienteering, which is a, a, support, a sport wherein there's a number of uh, checkpoints or controls put out around the country and, uh, and you've, you're given a map. It's an individual event normally and you're given a map and you have to run from point to point mm. uh, in the shortest possible time. And the average orienteering event is, well, it's all over in an hour or so. You know, it might be, you know, the course might be, you know, five kilometres kilometers or something like that. And um, by and large, it's usually in, well, it might be in farming land or pine forests or not terribly challenging country. Um, Roganing was developed as an offshoot of orienteering, where, wherein a huge array of control points would be put out across the country. Um, and uh, different point values would be put on the control points. <laughs> and the challenge is in the time available, which in a championship causes 24 hours, but lesser courses might be down to six hours, uh, is to pick up as many points as you can. And a well-designed course, even the best team won't be able to get around all the points. So, but you don't have to do points in any order or anything like that. So it's, mm. it's um, sometimes it's described as a course of nerds. And actually, I think people, when people have looked at it, it's a high proportion of uh, good row gainers are either sort of scientists or mathematicians or whatever, because it's, it's not just a matter of navigation. There's the whole thing about strategy and, uh, uh, and obviously um, endurance. Uh, so it's all a bit crazy. I, uh, <laughs> I first took it up uh, about... Um, yeah, 30 years ago, and um, um, and I all through the 90s I was doing this, and I got to a point, and I thought, oh, you know, I'm getting a bit old for this. I'm going to sprain an ankle or break a leg or something, and you know, I'll, I'll just go back to, well, I was all, I was bush doing normal bushwalking anyway. I thought I'll give it away, but uh, about four years ago I th thought, oh, well, you know, I look, I came a point when I thought uh, I was getting a bit. To be honest, I. Uh, a lung specialist gave me some dire warnings about the state of my lungs due to a lifetime of asthma, and I thought, well, I'm not going to take this lying down, and um, I've got to get fitter. And it's uh, so I started, went into Regani again, and uh, well, I, the other thing I did mention about Regani is it's a it's a team event, mm. so you team up with at least one other person, maximum of five people. Um, so I found a couple of. Uh, uh, gullible friends <laughs> who were uh, equal, equally mad and um, and got back into it. So I do a number of events each year, and uh, including this the, you know, the world event a couple of years ago in, in Latvia. Um, um, but it's just, when you're actually on an event, you're quite often thinking, "Why the hell am I doing this?" I guess. But <laughs> but, but you get it's well, it's like picking your head against a wall. It's great when it stops, and that's. And, and then you hear, you know, you just relive all the tales about what happened along the way, especially because you, if you're competitive, you're going all night mm, in the dark mm. and night navigation is something on its own. And, and it's often in quite challenging country. Um, but for me, you know, this is, this is, a, um, um, this is a way, you know, this is a prompt for me to try and keep fit. So mm, I, yeah, mm. I go out. Uh, so it's not a way to sort of contemplatively wander slowly around the bush or sit on a rock. It's, it's a totally different sort of thing. But nevertheless, you know, it's out. Uh, you're out there quite often seeing places you wouldn't normally go to. And Absolutely. Know, this is well. This is a pretty special place. I must come back here again sometime <laughs> at my leisure. You know. <laughs> You've uh, you mentioned before the uh, the slight craziness of rogaining, and you quote in, in your book the uh, 
uh, Don Watson line about the the Australian bush being an asylum for lost souls. Oh yes. Uh, to what extent do you think there's a, a bit of nuttiness involved in uh, in those who really love being out there in the bush? Mm. Well, yeah, there's there's there is an element of that, and uh, yes, I think I think I wrote in the book that maybe maybe I've you know I'm one of the lost souls out in the bush myself, but you know I. There's nothing like being out in the bush to get perspective on, on life in general, mm. uh, I think. And, um, you know, let's face it, you know, the world's a pretty scary place these days in many ways. And we, you know, it seems to be descending into chaos on a number of fronts. And, uh, I, you know, I, to, from, from a bush perspective, you know, just, just, just to get out in the bush for, a, well, even just for a few hours, but preferably longer, mm. um, and just think about your own life and the world in general. You think you know, the crazy stuff's in the out in the general world. You know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. crazy cities and and, and things. And, you know, just uh, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, certainly the calmest hour of my day is is always the hour spent running in the bush. Indeed, yes, that would be right. Can be sure that no no other hour will be as um, emotionally peaceful you know even if it's a hard run uh, it's, yes. uh, there's a, a calming as aspect to being surrounded by the, the trees and the, mm. and the birds mm. Mm. yeah a chap I wrote about in the book by the unlikely name of uh, Cecil Poole um, he was a country journalist and but he spent a lot of time basically wander, wandering around the bush and journalising, including in, in the Wallamai. This is uh, in the very early 1900s. And uh, reading his stuff, you know, he, um, he seems quite crazy at times, but, you know, he had, he, he had some very clear thinking about a number of issues. You know, he wrote extensively about how badly women were treated, for instance, and he wrote on environmental issues. This is back in, well, you know... Uh, yeah, around 1903, 1905, mm. all those those years when you think, wow, people actually you know made those had those thoughts back then. Yes, <laughs> but here he is, a bit crazy in the bush, you know. But it, yeah, yep. Yes, yeah, so crazy, crazy progressive as yeah, uh, yeah. Um, a couple of final questions, Andy. What advice would you give to your teenage self? Mm. Uh, look, you know, I. I often think back to the motto, I, I don't know what motto venturers have now, but the motto that <laughs> Baden-Powell, for, for, for all his for all his faults and good points, uh, the motto, motto he chose for senior scouts back in his day was, look wide. And uh, I often think about that because I, you know, I have uh, changed paths a couple of times in my life and uh, for the better. And, uh, and uh, I... Uh, I just think looking wide and being conscious of other paths, you know, it's all about this saying about, you know, the paths in the yellow wood, you know, I think. And I never, I have never regretted, you know, exploring a different path. And to, and look wide just in, encapsulates that that thing. So I think, you know, as a, as a teenager, you know, it, it, well, I know in thinking back in my case, it's very easy to sort of get into one track about where you think you might head in life. Well, in the end, it wasn't quite the track that I did head, you know, eventually, you know, and, uh, you know. Um, you moved away from your background as yeah, a so Yeah, so I started out as a, uh, well, I, did, I was a civil engineer and specialised in water resources, but one reason or another, I uh, 
uh, wasn't finding that very satisfying. I found myself compromised in a number of ways, mm. and uh, I just wanted to, yeah. And that, that's yeah. I, I basically, to cut the story short, abandoned that career. Yep. And uh, and refound the bush. Really. Yeah. Yeah. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Hmm. Well, I, look. I think growing up, I think. I uh, I think the certainty of, um, of, of the Western um, democratic society was 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 a given, mm. and not questioned. These days, I don't know what the answer is, but I don't think anything's working. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Have you changed your attitude to the bush and to walking as you've grown older? Um, it, well, in a way, I suppose, because I suppose in, in my teenage years, being in the bush was just entirely about having adventures, which is great, you know, nothing wrong with that. And uh, now I sort of yeah, I come at it from different points of view, you know, uh, as well. As have, I like having an adventure, but there's all this thing about you know, stories and, mm. and, and I'm not a plant person, but when I go walking with my wife, you know, she is. And so, you know, that's a different element again, you know. So I, so I, have, I appreciate things from different, from additional points of view that I yes. never would have back in those days, yeah. When are you most happy? Hmm. Well, happiness is a funny thing, isn't it? So, yes. Yeah, I, I, I had a major birthday the other day, and look, being with family and friends, uh, it's always a source of great happiness. Um, but a different sort of happiness is pottering about on your own in a gully in the Volumai, you know? It's just, um, and I, I can't compare one with the other. Yeah. Do you, do you often hike with, uh, with friends? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, so I you, don't, can com- I, you can combine that, uh, that 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 love of friends and ab- love of the abs- bush. They're absolutely. not mutually exclusive. So, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, and, and 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 walking with 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 family and good friends is is very special. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Do you often take people off the beaten track in those those moments? Uh, over the years, I have absolutely. Yeah, yep. And um, uh, I think people have usually appreciated it. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> No, it's rare that we get to, uh, to to leave the trail. Yeah. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Uh, well, well, keeping active. So, yeah, I, I, uh, I try and keep physically fit. It's along the lines I was saying before, you know, go for you know, a solid walk. Uh, um you know, for at least a couple of hours, you know, a couple of times a week sort of thing. Hmm. Um, um, but also, yeah, just intellectually, I've, uh, I like learning new, uh, new skills. So, uh, yeah, just new, new intellectual challenges. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, I'm, well, well, just for instance, you know, I've, yeah, because I'm involved with managing a remote area uh, um, bush region program, you know, we've got a lot of data to organise. So, you know, I'm exploring, currently exploring new sort of software for, you know, t- to manage that. Yeah, you know, yeah. That um, probably not absolutely necessary, but it's, the challenge is, you know, good for the mind. Yes, absolutely. Do you have any guilty pleasures? 
Uh, well, I, yeah, I, I guess so. <laughs> look, I, look, you know, I just... You look uh, like you have to scratch your head hard to no, the, answer this question. No, 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 no. Plenty of guilty pleasures. Look, it's, look, it's really nice just um, delaying getting get out of bed with a cup of tea sometimes. <laughs> think, <laughs> think I ought to be doing this, but, yeah. But, you know, before I came to see you this afternoon, I went and had a, went and had a cup of coffee up at the State Library because I had a bit of time. And, uh, and I was just thinking then... Uh, it's a great pleasure of mine just to bury myself sometimes in uh, in some dusty archives somewhere, yes. whether it's the old Mitchell Library or State Archives. Unfortunately, not something you can actually do very often now because so much of it has become available on, online mm. that um, it's a totally different experience. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a, bit of an in, a bit of an indulgence, I think, sometimes if you're just looking for that bit of... Uh, just a little bit of historical information that to other people might be totally trivial... But it's just the pleasure in, in just digging through something somebody wrote, you know, two hundred years ago or something. And yeah, that yes, that, that's a. I don't know. It's a guilty pleasure, but it's. Uh, yeah. But it's clearly a pleasure, and it shines yes. through in your writing. That yeah. delight at discovering snippets and putting together not just the stories of nature, but the stories of of the past and mm. drawing that out of the documents. Mm. Uh, yeah. Uh, and finally, Andy, what person or what experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Mm. I look. I think it goes right back to my childhood. I, uh, I, I think my parents, particularly my, I see my father as a very ethical person. Um, yeah, he. Um, you know, when I was you know, having troubles with health as a young lad and so on, they wanted to get me into Cubs. And uh, uh, at the time, it turned out there was a big waiting list. And, they, and apparently they told him that, look, you know, your, your son will have to wait a couple of years to get into the Scouts, but if, if you, Mr McQueen, become a, uh, you know, an assistant leader here. <laughs> and he did, you know. Very clever. He did. And uh, he not only became an assistant leader, he went on, you know, into sort of higher volunteer ranks in the, in, in the scouting business. And uh, and I always admired him for that. And uh, But I, I yeah, and I, and I, th- I think I'd, I think through my parents and also, you know, I mentioned, I mentioned a sort of mentor leader in the senior scouts too and, and other friends I had through those circles. They were all, all people with strong ethical uh, backgrounds. I think that all mm. became ingrained in, in me, yeah. So I do my best, yeah. <laughs> Andy McQueen, uh, explorer and author, thanks so much for taking the time to cheer your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. It's been great, thanks, Andrew. And Andy's new latest book is Wayfaring in Wollamai. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you enjoyed this conversation, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Bob Carr, Matt Napier and Brad Karanatha. We appreciate getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others find the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.